I want to jump right into this today because I don't want us to go too far over, and this is a significant passage, and it's, it's full of theological significance, and I don't want to downplay or miss any of that. So we're actually going to talk about this passage for two weeks, because next week uh, for our... I'm just going to reset that for you, Dan. Um, when we talk about... Uh, next week when we get together, it'll be our four-year anniversary, and I want to talk about why we are the kind of church we are in reference to this passage. So today I'll tell you a little bit about kind of what they decided and how it went, and then on next week I'll explain why we are the kind of church that we are based on uh, a significant part of this passage. And this is a, uh, one of those defining uh, sections of Scripture for me as a pastor. Um, I, I know I'm probably not supposed to have favorites, right? You know, like they say, which kid's your favorite? And you're like, I love them all. Yeah, I love them all, but I love Acts chapter 15 probably more than Leviticus. I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, and that is significant because that's exactly what comes out of this passage. Uh, but I just kind of want to make sure that we do it justice. And, and the one thing I also want you to kind of key in on and figure out here is that this should break some of your expectations on how to look at the scriptures, how to understand the Old Testament, how to understand the, uh, the first covenant and the second covenant, the, the old covenant and the new covenant. Um, and you may be sitting here thinking, I don't really think about any of that. I look at the Bible and I weigh it all the same. And you're like... I understand where that perspective comes from, but in this section, we're going to see that there's a new way of moving forward, a new way of doing things, a new way of interpreting and understanding the whole entire Bible, and it is sometimes very freeing to people to hear this and understand this and apply this, and I'm going to do all this without trying to get myself in any theological uh, trouble, so this is what we're going to do today, and I would say the one thing that comes out of this passage that's really important is that it was very clear to me that the first church wanted to make sure that there was a unified church and not two churches. It would have been really easy, and I'm going to explain why this is important in a minute, to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church, a Jewish church and a non-Jewish church. Could have been, could have been termed the people who grew up with religion and the people who grew up with no religion. There could have been two different churches. We're always uh, in danger of that in different forms. Even now, as we kind of are seeing our economy and the economy in general kind of split into a conservative and a liberal economy, and or a uh, woke and a non-woke economy, or a just apply whatever thing that divides us as a nation right down the middle, and you can see two different groups of people starting to come apart and lose unity together and miss what is they actually have in common and focus in on the things that they don't have in common, and the church dodge that bullet. In fact, I would have said divinely inspired were pushed to make difficult choices to make sure that there was one church moving forward, not two. Okay, so I'm going to pick it up here with Acts chapter 15, verse 1. If I can get this to, oh boy, stay like that. Feels like I'm going too far. There we go. Perfect. All right, Acts chapter uh, 15, verse 1 is where we are today. And uh, so, yeah, we're starting with, this is definitely not correct. FYI. Yes. So I'm going to read what I have in my, uh, on my screen here, and you guys need to figure out what this is because this ain't what we're supposed to have on there. So Acts chapter 15, verse 1, if you got an app or a Bible, follow along. Um, I wouldn't put that up until it somehow matches what we have. 
Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so Antioch is where now the center of the church has moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. Jerusalem has had its day. It is kind of waning in its significance to the church throughout the region. Antioch now is the place where they're sending missionaries. They're reaching people who are lost, who are far from God. They're doing all kinds of ministry with all kinds of different people, fulfilling the mission that the church had in Acts. Okay, So this is where all the heavy-duty stuff is going on. This is where all the incredible testimonies are coming out of. You're going to see that in a second, where you're starting to see people who are very far from God, who grew up with no religion at all, who are finding their way into this church and understanding who Jesus is and having their lives changed by Jesus and the resurrection. And they're doing it without the, you know, the background of being a religious person and without any of the baggage that comes along with following the law, meaning they ate the pork and they ate the shrimp and they dressed how they wanted and they did different things. There's all kinds of stuff that they did that would have been uh, completely a problem for a Jewish person. And if you had applied all this stuff to what was going on in Jerusalem, I mean, still Jews, if they were following the law, they couldn't do business with Gentiles. They couldn't eat with Gentiles. They couldn't you know, go into Gentiles' house. They couldn't have them stay with them. They couldn't, there was a lot of problems. They couldn't share meals together. There was a lot of problems with the church trying to figure out how do we bring in this like formerly religious group of people who have this like baggage of the law, following all these 600 rules that are on top of them and doing them as well as they can, and these people who have no regard for any of that. These non-religious people who have no regard for any of the 600 laws, they're basically, you know, kind of not following any of the customs of the Jews. And putting these people together brought, to, brought so many problems that there was conflict all over the place. And the way that the Jerusalem church solved that is they just asked Gentiles to come closer to the religious people. So they said, if you want to be one of us, you got to, if you're a man, you got to have a surgery, uh, circumcision. As an adult, by the way, that's, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. I don't think they were reaching a lot of non-Jewish men. I think the minivan pulled up in front of the synagogue or wherever they were meeting and the women and children went into the church and the husband was sitting in the car going, I, I just, I got to pray about it a little bit more and I just really got to give this some thought. I'm not really 100% sure if, I, uh, if I'm ready to follow Jesus, um, you know, because, uh, you know, like, what do, what do they do? Like, circumcision, then baptism, or baptism, then circumcision? Like, how did this work exactly? And it wasn't just that one issue, although that's the issue that's going to be, like, come to the forefront. But there was more than that. The way that you eat, the way that you treat other people, they basically were taking believers, turning them into Jews so they could become Christians. It makes no sense. This is not what... Jesus has asked us to do. And so that new member class was probably full of women and children, but not a lot of men. And it was probably a pretty significant problem for most people to follow Jesus. Okay? And they, the, that area, basically Judea, sent people behind Paul in Antioch and tried to teach against what he was teaching. Now, Paul has been in Antioch off of his first missionary journey, kind of recovering from his stoning and his, you know, going back home and kind of hanging out in Antioch and, and recovering. He's been there for a couple years preaching. And that's really important uh, because it's, he's given him time to kind of start to teach the stuff that he learned from Jesus before Jesus uh, rose or before, during his uh, experience with Jesus uh, that he had after Jesus was, was risen. Okay, And so he's starting to teach and that stuff's starting to take root and Antioch is growing and things are happening and people are following Jesus. And it's really, really, really exciting. People who are far from God are coming close to God. So then, then it says this. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Which, by the way, it's okay to be in sharp dispute with a brother that you love. That's okay. The thing that's not okay is to not deal with the sharp dispute that you have. I know none of you have ever done that. This is not a common thing here where people just treat you like with... Uh, like you're, you're their best friend to your face and then hate you behind the scenes. I know that doesn't happen. I know that you don't do that. I know that's not passive-aggressive. This is not a passive-aggressive area. I get it. But sharp dispute can actually be really important sometimes. It can wake people up from some of the stuff that's going on in their life that they need to have brought up. It can deal with some of the ten- tension that you have between people who love each other and should be in community. It's something that's important. And so Paul and Barnabas... Um, came into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, and these are the the people that came down from Judea to teach behind Paul. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they decided, let's get all the people who have some sway here together, and let's have them talk it through, and let's have them figure out where to go from here. We're going to let the leaders of this church make the decision about where this church should go. And when they say church, they didn't mean the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. They meant the church. Now, this is really tough for us because the way that Christianity is splintered in our world today and the way that it's split in many different ways uh, kind of tends to make it feel like there are a lot of different churches. There are a lot of different movements. There are a lot of different things going on. And most of the time, if we're talking about the church, we're talking about this church. But sometimes when I'm talking about the church, we're talking about the global church or the universal church, all of us put together who are moving the ball down the field and kind of serving the mission. And you kind of ask the question, who's on this team and who isn't? Well, there are varying degrees of churches that are doing what we've been called to do here in Acts and in the New Testament. And so it gets a little bit weird today thinking about all the different churches. Like, So here's a good example. In, in uh, one of the sections of Scripture here in, in Corinthians, Paul talks about this person is in sin. And he says, hey, if you get to the end of trying to work this person out of the sin that they're in, and they're like damaging the church, and there's a big problem, he says, then you should just boot them out of the church. And that sounds like, wait, why would you boot them out of the church? Like, that sounds terrible. You would actually just kick them out of the church because they won't stop sinning, and they haven't responded to any of the, uh, you know, any of the, the confrontation that you've given them. Like, what in the world... Why would you ever do that? Well, today, if I booted somebody out of this church, there's like a hundred churches they can just go down the road and go to. It wouldn't have carried the same amount of weight as what would have happened then. If you were booted out of the church at that point, you were booted out of community, out of connection, out of, you know, it was a, it was a way to wake a person up who had gone off the rails so badly that they were really damaging the church or damaging themselves or damaging their loved ones that they're in relationship with and their family. It was a way to really wake somebody up and cause them to change. And well, now that wouldn't work. There are 14,000 churches out there. You know, you probably passed two great churches, three great churches, five great churches on your way here. By the way, thank you for being at Pursuit. And I love what we're doing. And I think it's awesome. And I think everybody should come and be part of what, what we're doing. But there's a lot of great churches, and we're moving towards the same goal, right? And so hopefully this is going to get itself figured out by using the universal church and the leaders at both of these main two churches to come together and make a decision together. And I think sometimes when we think about that, the way that we govern ourselves is we're part of a denomination of churches. There are 200, 200 and how many? 250 churches in our 
uh, network, our local area, which is Minnesota and Iowa. And uh, we're loosely affiliated because we choose to be affiliated with one another. And we are locally led at our, at our church. So we have leaders here that, that make decisions here. And we submit to uh, our denomination above us. And there are 250 other churches that are also in submission in the same way because we choose to be. That's good. That's what we want. So for us, there is a, like, a team that we're on which is a bigger church than just us, okay? If we ever, by the way, had a problem that rose beyond the level of leadership we had here, we have a denomination that can step in and help us, but we would choose to invite them in and choose to ask them to help us, and we'd be looking for it. Okay, anyways, that's enough of the ecclesiology here. All right, Uh, so it says, um, they came to sharp debate. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made it all, all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. And that is, by the way, the thing that gives your church life is transformation, stories of transformation, testimonies of transformation, watching people be transformed. More on that in a second. But that is the fruit of a church. That is the fuel to keep the church going. And that is what pushes all of us to do the things that we do. For those people who are over in kids' ministry right now, they're in a classroom full of two-year-olds that are climbing all over them. And it's the worst hour of their week. I mean, probably not. They probably love it. But it's the best hour of those kids' week. Right? That we, we, we give and we're generous and we serve and we lay ourselves down because we see transformation happening in this church. Because we watch people's lives be changed and we think, I can change someone's life. I can change this two-year-old's life. I can change their parents' life. I can be part of the things that are happening in this church. And that was the testimony that they told all the way through the region as they went to Jerusalem. They just continued to hit church after church, community after community, and share the news and tell everybody what was going on and encourage them and say, this is a movement that won't ever be stopped. And by the way, it wasn't. We're still here meeting today because it wasn't stopped. Jesus himself says, my church will never be overcome. It will always be successful. It is the way that I've chosen to do this. Do this. And so this is the story of transformation that fuels the church. It fuels any great church. It fuels our church. Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, what? stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They probably were more like, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Uh, Hold on a second. Now, this church is probably about 20 years old at this point. And now there are people who are in the room, who are in leadership, who are calling some of the shots, who are part of the Pharisees. I don't know if you really focused in on their role in the whole like gospel of Jesus going to the cross and him dying and him being resurrected. They had kind of a tough role there. Jesus kind of gave them some of the hardest language he gave anyone in the entire Bible. They were kind of the ones that were like really forcing and pushing for Jesus to be executed. These were the bad guys. These were the guys against Jesus. And now some of them are in leadership. And you might look at that and you might say, well, that's great. You know, anyone can be reformed now. This is transformation. This is great. But they're still identifying with the party of the Pharisees. They're not identifying with Jesus' new covenant. They're not identifying with the way of Jesus. They're identifying still with what they grew up in and what was the, the religion of their choice. 
And I want you to know, a church over its life cycle, and I will definitely be preaching on this next week, a lot more about this, but it turns inward over time. You start turned outward thinking, let me reach the world, and we start to turn inward and focus on ourselves over time, and we go from being unreligious, only religious enough that we have to be, to being too religious and it becomes barrier after barrier for people. And then all of a sudden, the people that are in charge are the ones going, there are rules and there are guidelines and we have to do this and we have to exclude these people and do it this way and it has to be like this. And over time, the church transforms. This happens, by the way. You can see the life cycle of churches with, it, with a 10-year window and a 20-year window that they either do one of two things. They turn inward on themselves and they slowly die or they stay completely outwardly facing and they slowly grow. Okay, these are, these are the two options that you have. We will always be looking outward, forcing it to be looking outward because we know naturally we're going to go inward. Naturally, we're going to go, I have my people, I have my small group, I'm happy with the people that are here. I don't necessarily need anyone else. Anybody who makes me feel uncomfortable, I'd rather exclude them. This is good, I like this size, I know all these people. And we kind of start turning ourselves inward. And that just happens in the life of a church always. And we have to fight that all the time. We have to fight it. All the time. This is why some of our values, which this is what I'm going I'm to preach on next week, our values, but like some of our values are thinking about people who aren't here yet because there is nobody in the church fighting for and communicating for and thinking about people who aren't here. And yet they're the ones we're supposed to be making decisions for, trying to reach, reaching out to, trying to, trying to get into their lives and help them understand the gospel. That's what it looks like to be a church that is outwardly facing and this church is seeing some of this inwardness happening because these Pharisees are now trying to go, hey, this Jesus thing was great, but let's continue to add on some more Jewish stuff. It's almost like they're taking the new covenant that Jesus came and they're mixing in old covenant. They're like, hey, let's take a little bit of Leviticus and a little bit of Deuteronomy. We'll just throw this in here. We've got this whole Jesus thing, but then we've got a little bit of this Old Testament. And we do this too. Uh, you're not going to like what I have to say in a minute, but you know, we do this. We go, well, the Old Testament, you know, like the the... Uh, Ten Commandments is really good. I teach my kid the Ten Commandments. It's really good morality. I think we should really follow the Ten Commandments. And what they're going to say here in a minute is you don't have to follow the Ten Commandments. Just stick with me. I know. You're like, wait, hold on. Is this guy going off the rails? Just stick with me. That some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up, the religious people, the Gentiles must be circumcised. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So, they're making a decision for the church. All the leaders are there. Uh, in the room, we know, is Paul and Barnabas and James and Peter. James, the brother of Jesus, is now in charge of the church in Jerusalem. And by the way, that's, to me, one of the greatest proofs that Jesus is who he said he was because what would it take for you to worship your brother? Just let it, let it sink in for a second. You wouldn't want to, right? And... Basically, James, who knew Jesus through and through and grew up with him and knew all the quirks and were together growing up, was now completely uh, transitioned to worshiping Jesus. He wrote the book of James. We can go and see what he has to say, and he's leading the church. And so we've got Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas and probably some of these uh, Pharisees and probably some of these uh, different people in the mix. And it looks like Luke might have even been in the mix or been able to see what was going on because he's giving a firsthand account. It's either one of the people that was in the room or there were a lot of people in the room able to see this debate. And so here's the debate. After much discussion, 
Peter got up and addressed them. So they're going back and forth. Somebody says, you got to be circumcised. you got to go through this thing. And then Paul and Barnabas are like, nope, that's not true. We've been watching Gentiles come to Jesus. We haven't circumcised any of them. This doesn't make any sense. We don't need to follow the law anymore. So he, Peter gets up and addresses them and says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's going back to the time when he kind of reached out to um, the centurion and had this vision and was able to share the gospel. And so he's telling the story again that he's probably told a million times to help some of these religious people get over their religion and get into this idea that this is a new covenant. He says, uh, God, who knows the heart, by the way, so God's the one that judges, not us. We don't need to worry about the judging. God's the one who judges. He knows the heart. Showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And he basically, and this would be Paul's uh, communication too in Romans chapter 2, he talks about there's a different type of circumcision. It's not a physical circumcision anymore. There's not a place in your body that you can show that you've been circumcised, but now there's a circumcision of the heart. And this is what Paul had to say in Romans chapter 2. A person is not a Jew who is only outwardly, sorry, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And so Paul would come back and he would second this motion that you are made you know, justified in God's sight because you're circumcised in your heart. You've decided to change your heart in the direction of God and to pursue him. Not your outwardly actions or even your physical body will tell the story, but your heart will tell this story. And God is the one who judges that. Not any of us and not any other person. So this is, this is Peter still. He says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that is neither, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as we are. And that's it. It's grace. It's not grace plus some of the Old Testament. We don't need to mix in the law of Moses and grace. It's just grace. You come to Jesus. You bring your baggage. You lay it down. He gives you forgiveness. That's it. You're forgiven because he says you're forgiven. You're forgiven because he loves you. You're forgiven because he made a way for you to be forgiven. Not because you earned it, not because you did anything for it. It's because of his love and grace that we are forgiven. And he says to the Jews, right, the people, the, the Pharisees in the room, you guys are all saved by grace too. Not because you're good, not because you follow 600 laws, not because you've stayed kosher your whole life, not because you're circumcised. None of these things matter. If you're circumcised in the heart, you're forgiven by grace, you're in. That's, that's the thing that they're looking for. People who are circumcised in the heart, who are forgiven by grace, who bring their baggage and lay it down, and they don't have any, uh, they don't have any stipulations on receiving that grace. And by the way, I think this is probably where most of us mess this up. Because we say, I want to come to Jesus and I want to receive his grace and I want to find forgiveness in every single area except for this, this one or these few or this thing. And I think that's what's happening nowadays in a lot of lives of a lot of people is they're saying, I like Jesus and I want to receive grace, but please don't touch this area of my life. And what they have is actually a conflict of identities. They say, this is very important to me, Jesus. You can't change this but I want to receive Jesus as my, as my Lord and Savior. 
And if you make him your Lord and Savior, everything has to be on the table for it to be changed. You have to be submitted to his way and his will and his word. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Doesn't mean we, we hold back things and go, not this area, everything else, but not this. And you'll, you'll see why that, that could be a problem here in a second. So he says, look, guys, we can't ask them to do the Jewish thing because it didn't work for us. We've all been saved by grace because we couldn't do it perfectly. And they are too. It says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell stories about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And so Peter and Paul used testimony to win the argument. They shared stories about transformation in people's lives, and that was the end of the argument. The Pharisees were probably sharpening their pencils and lining up Old Testament verses to argue over, and Paul shares the story of people whose lives were transformed, and it shuts everybody up, and they hang on every word that he has to say, and they pay attention to what he's saying, and all of them at the end of it go, yeah, you know what? He's right. And when people ask you, if you can be saved, this is, what, this is what grace looks like. I mean, I feel like sometimes we, we, we struggle with this and we go, well, is it okay that you can be saved on your deathbed? And you're, yes, that's what grace, that's what grace is. Even the worst person in the world, yes, that's what grace is. The best person in the world and the worst person in the world still both need grace. We're saved through grace. And here's a story and another one and another one and another one. But really what they're having a conversation here about is whether or not we need to mix and match some of this old covenant and some of this new covenant to make it work. And we've gotten way out of whack here, I think, in our American Christianity in trying to mix and match behavior stuff from the Old Testament and grace from the New Testament. We go, grace is great, but also you shouldn't do this and this and that and this and that. I don't know if you grew up in this kind of like mixed up version of what Christianity is, but you kind of had this one message telling you it's grace by faith and the other message saying, but also don't do this and that and this and that. I feel like as a youth pastor, that was always my problem because I had parents that were saying, please keep my kids from drinking and having sex and doing drugs and making terrible choices. Please just help them be good kids. And that's a, I mean, every parent wants that. There's not a parent out there who's like, please help my kid drink and do drugs and have sex. Like, well, there might be in today's world, that's how messed up our world is, but not any of the ones that I had in the church, right? A lot of them were just saying, please modify the behavior of my child. Please use Jesus to modify the behavior of my child. And that's what a lot of this was. was. The Old Testament was all the rules and laws, the 600 things that you had to do to be a, a, a separated, God-fearing Jew. But, you know, we don't need to be a separated, God-fearing Jew. We don't need to follow the old way, the law, the, the old covenant. We get a new covenant. And I, I mean, in one way, it's awesome, right? The old covenant has been superseded by the new covenant. It's been upgraded. It's been the old was fulfilled in Christ, and now the new one is offered to us. This is where I'm going to get myself in trouble. But our new covenant is more inclusive, is much simpler, and is way more difficult to keep. Okay, focus in on this for a second. It's more inclusive, much simpler, and way more difficult to keep. It's easier to follow 600 laws than it is to follow the new covenant that Jesus has given us. And yet it's way simpler. There's not a set of rules. And this is going to be really, uh, if you're a rule-following person, you kind of hate the, 
the sort of nebulous nature of what I'm about to share with you, but this is what Jesus left us with, and this is what he gave us. And so what are you, what are you saying? You're, you're sitting there thinking, what is this guy saying? That we can murder and steal and lie? Now we don't have to follow the, the Old Testament. We don't have to follow the 600 laws. We don't, we don't have to follow the Ten Commandments. No, I'm obviously not saying that. Okay? I'm not saying go, go hog wild. If you ask the question, what can I get away with, you've missed the idea of what the new covenant is. It's not what can I get away with. It's how close can I be to God in relationship. Okay? This is a relationship. We don't ask how much I can get away with. We seek to do everything we can to please our Father and care for one another just hang with me for a second. It's more inclusive. Uh, here's what Paul has to say about the new covenant in Ephesians chapter 4. But now in Christ Jesus, who is, sorry, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, and he made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier between them, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands. He set aside the law and its commands and brought the two groups together, the non-religious and the religious, and brought them together because we don't need to follow the old covenant anymore. There's a new covenant that brings us all together. Okay, It's much more inclusive. It doesn't include just Israel. And you don't have to become a Jew to be a Christian. You are now invited into relationship with God. You're able to, as Hebrews says, enter his throne room boldly because of your relationship with Jesus. You're able to have direct access to God through this new, new covenant. And it is much more inclusive. In fact, it's so inclusive, it should make us all feel uncomfortable. I know the Jews back then were incredibly uncomfortable with how grace-filled and inclusive the gospel was. Okay? So just hear me when I say that. It's much more inclusive than you think. It says, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity attitude, thus making peace. Okay, it's much more inclusive. It's much more simple. Our new covenant is based on love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's, it's based on a new command I give you, love one another as, you have, as I have loved you. So you must love one another and by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the Great Commission. Therefore, go and preach and teach and show everyone everything that I have commanded you. This is your mission as a believer. And so, yes, are all of the law, all of the important parts of the law, are they in that simple command that we have to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, to love other people as yourself, to love others as I have loved you? Would you murder? Would you lie? Would you do all the things that are in the Old Testament? No, you would avoid the things that would break those relationships, that would destroy the, the creation that God has, has done. It would, if you're in relationship trying to be closer to Jesus, trying to pursue Jesus, you're going to do all the things in the Old Testament that you should be doing and none of the ones that you shouldn't. It's much simpler. It's, hey, seek after God. Pursue Him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Make Him first. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat them the way that you were treated by Christ. Okay? That's the new command that we're given. And it's more difficult to keep. Jesus Himself, He said when, you know, in His main teaching, hey, you've heard it said, and this is you know, where we get to murder here. He says, you've heard it said right, by people long ago, you must not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. He says, whatever the law said about what the standard was, I've actually taken that standard and I've now asked you in your heart 
Not to murder, not to hate, not to be angry with your brother. That's actually where murder begins. It begins in your heart. He says, uh, to anyone, you've heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her and, and has done so in his heart. He says, the standard for me is your heart. It's not the rules and the laws and the regulations. It's this relationship that now you can have with God through the grace of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that now you can have relationship, but it's simple, but it's also incredibly difficult to keep. We've, we've asked the question, what can we get away with? And we've missed the point. It's not what can we get away with. It's how much can we be transformed into who Christ has made us to be? How much control can we give the Holy Spirit? How many parts of our life can we submit to Jesus in his ways? And the Old Testament starts to make tons of sense when it feeds into the new covenant, when we see it being established in Jesus and this new covenant being offered to us, the old was for the Jews. It wasn't for you. The old was meant to show you what the new was. It was meant to, it was a shadow of what was to come. The full picture came in Jesus. It was fulfilled and a new covenant was begun with humanity. And thank God because we'd be sitting on the outside looking in today if it wasn't for that. And we'd be saying, I guess I got to go get circumcised. I guess I got to go do this or do that or follow this law or follow that law. I can't eat pork anymore. I got to do this thing. And that would have been fine. I mean, I don't think any of us would have been super duper crazy upset about any of that, but none of that was necessary. It was a picture of Jesus, and now we've seen what he looks like. And it's been offered to us, and we've been included in the whole thing. It's not about following rules. It's about pleasing God in relationship. It's about loving each other on his behalf. It's about seeking to become his disciples and witnesses and is the Old Testament important? Absolutely. It was important to Jesus and important to Paul and important to James and important to all the writers of the New Testament. They quoted it. It was all based in that. Everything in the Old Testament proclaims Jesus' name, shows you the whole, the whole entire picture from beginning to end. It is absolutely significant and part of our Bible for a reason. But we don't need the Old Covenant. We got a new one. The new is better than the old. The new is based on grace. It's based on faith. It's based on loving Christ and being in a relationship with him. It's based on loving other people and being his disciple and his witnesses. And the Gentiles are having a hard time here because they're saying, we thought we were doing this right, and yet these religious people continue to look down on us and tell us that we aren't full believers or full Christians, that there's more that we have to do. And we're kind of watching this all work here in Antioch. So it says, when they finished, James spoke up. So here's the brother of Jesus, who's now the leader of the church. And he speaks up to kind of settle the matter. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described for you how God first intervened to choose the people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. So he consults the Old Testament and he starts to show how Jesus comes through this as God's plan from the beginning. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And when all Gentiles who bear my name say, says the Lord, who does these things. He says, it was always part of the plan to reach everybody with this message. He said, these are things we've known from long ago. Thank God, because that's us. It's my judgment, therefore. And this, to me, is the like defining verse. And if you were going to do a little verse memory, or you're going to write this one down and put it somewhere, or you're going to think through what it means to be missional in this world, this is a verse that hits so hard, that rings out in this entire chapter. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we, the religious people, the ones who grew up Jews, the ones who understood what it meant to follow God correctly and follow the 600 laws, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I want you to stop and look at that verse for a second. And I want you to understand that there's a lot going on here. But what he says is the religious people need to draw near to the ones who aren't religious. The ones with the religious baggage need to unload their baggage and draw near to the people who are far from God. But he defines who these people are. Yes, they're Gentiles. They're people that didn't grow up with religion. They don't have any religion. They don't understand the law. They don't know what they're not doing right. We need to draw near to them and make it easy for them to come and follow Jesus. No circumcision, no dietary laws. Let's just help them know Jesus. That's the most important thing. But he says this about them. He says, I don't want to make it difficult for the Gentiles who what? He qualifies which Gentiles he's talking about here. He doesn't say we should make it easy for every single Gentile, no matter where they're at on the spectrum of faith. He doesn't say the ones who are, look exactly like the culture, who are like really far into their own personal ideology or identity. He's like, I'm not going to try to make it easy for them because it's going to be very difficult for somebody who looks just like the culture to come and know Jesus. That's going to be really hard. That person's going to have to change significantly. We're not going to make it easy for everybody who looks like the rest of the world around. We're going to make it easy for the people who are turning to God. The people who are turning to God. That if you see in somebody an opening where they're saying, I don't know where I'm at with this God, and I want to know where I'm at. That I'm ready to submit to his teaching, and I'm ready to change my life and be transformed. And I think the difference between us just openly accepting and trying to straighten the path for every single person in the entire world is not a fair thing for us to be doing. We don't actually want to become like the culture to reach people who are so far into the culture that that would be the only way to get a hold of them. We want to create a nice, even path, an, an, an easy entry for people who are turning to God, who are submitting their hearts to Christ, who don't know what they're not doing right yet, who are all kinds of messed up, who bring all kinds of baggage into here, but they're interested in submitting to Jesus. They say, not my identity, his. Not my thing, but his. Not my political thing, but his. Not this thing, but his. I want to turn and get to know Jesus. It's those people that we want to make it so, 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 so easy to know Jesus, to focus on the main thing. And I think we get ourselves into trouble. Yeah, should we love every person we come in contact? Absolutely. Should we become like the world? There are some ways we should, and other ways we should not. Are we making the path straight for every single person? Sometimes you can't make the path straight for somebody who's not going to be submitted to Jesus. If they're going to come in and say, here's my identity that I'm going to hold on to tightly, and I'm going to try to add Jesus to this, we're doing them a disservice by making it too easy for them. Transformation has to happen in the lives of people. They have to submit to everything Christ has called us to do. And I think that's where we get ourselves into trouble. The thing I would look at is whether or not someone is being submitted to Jesus more and more every day, not whether they have all the uh, actions or attitudes or everything correct all the time. Bring in your baggage, but if you're being submitted to Jesus more and more every day, if there's no part of your life that you're holding back from Jesus to be submitted to, then you are welcome to be part of this church, even with your baggage, even with your screwed up life, even with all the things going on in your life. And by the way, all of us have baggage and screwed up life. Some of us just hide it better. We constantly need to be submitted to Jesus. And so James settles it. 
It's my judgment we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That is what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people turn to God, and we're trying to make it not difficult for them to know Christ. He says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read. And you might read that. I'm really going to unpack this next week, but you might read that and think, well, why did they choose those four things out of the Old Testament? They just like randomly, was there like some sort of conversation like, okay, should we, should we ask them, hey, uh, you know, let's make it easy for Gentiles to come to Jesus. We'll, we'll get rid of circumcision, but should we leave murder in there? Like that's kind of a big one, right? I feel like we should not encourage people to go murder people, right? Like let's, let's, let's throw that in there. Like, nah. So there's like this hierarchy of things. Like we got to, what is this? Why are they choosing these four things? Sexual morality, Meat of strangled animals, blood of... Like, what is all this? And they land here on the things that would destroy unity in their church. And this is essentially what they're saying. This is a compromise. They're saying, hey, religious people are going to let go of 600 and something laws to welcome Gentiles into the church who love God, who want to follow God. We're going to welcome them in. But if the Gentiles continue to do a few of these things, it would actually split this church into two and destroy the church from the inside out. People couldn't eat together. They couldn't be together. This would create all kinds of problems for those of us who are religiously still not able to let it go. And so what we're asking for the people who are free, the the Gentiles who are by grace alone, we're just asking them to do a couple, just a few things to create unity in our church because we don't want it to be two churches. We want it to be one church. Uh, I'm going to leave it there because next week I want to dive back into that section and I want to outline for you what that means and what that means to us as a church. But, but here's where I wanted to, to land today. Are you fully submitted to Jesus in every area of your life? Are you continually turning to God every day, every week, every month, all the time? Because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not 600 laws, it's grace. But it's someone who has received grace and continues to turn over more areas of their life for Christ to change and be transformed. It should be stories that we tell each other all the time of places, maybe small areas, maybe big areas, places we have been transformed by the power of the gospel. That continues to fuel us as a church and continues to drive us as believers in Jesus, and that we should make the path straight for everyone who is turning their heart in submission to Jesus. We pray for us. God, would you help us to continually be turning our hearts towards you? To not be caught up on the rules and the guidelines and the boundaries, God, but to be focused on the most important thing, the heart of the matter, which is to be following you, to be in relationship with you, God. Thank you for this example of what it looks like to have a unified church of people who understand the new covenant that you established. God, I do pray that this would be the kind of place that people who are far from you, but turning to you, being submitted to you, would find their way in, would find a straight path towards knowing you, and would find the discipleship that is necessary to be transformed in all the areas that you are trying to transform us. God, would you help us not to be like the world outside of this place, but to continue to be transformed into the disciple that you've called us to be? And would you help us to continue to reach the people who are turning to you but far from you? 
God, would you help religious, the religious among us move towards the unreligious among us? I pray that this church would be unified, not split down the lines of all kinds of things that divide us. We would be focused on our mission to reach the world. In Jesus' name, amen.